Luke chapter number 17. We're going to begin there in verse number 11. It's, it's always uh, difficult to know after a meeting like we've just had uh, what to pick, where to start, where to kind of dive in. Uh, and uh, to kind of tie it up, I want to tie it up on one end, and then on the other hand, I want it to propel us forward uh, as a pastor. I don't want us to lose the momentum of what God perhaps did in your heart on this last week and what God did in my heart. Uh, and so I'm going to try to kind of look at some folks this morning that, uh, that God, Jesus did something miraculous in their life. Uh, but only one of them really experienced fully what God was trying to do for them. And so in Luke chapter 17, if we look at the beginning of the chapter, it's the well-known passage where there, uh, Jesus is commanding the disciples to forgive. Uh, and whenever they're harmed and whenever problems come, that they should forgive and uh, as, as many times as it takes. And so Peter asks, if he trespasses against me seven times and Jesus says in a day, uh, then we're supposed to turn again and saying, I, I repent, then we're supposed to forgive. The apostles' response there has always intrigued me because he, he's talking to them about forgiveness and they say to him in response, Lord, increase our faith. And so it's just that faith to forgive, to do what God's commanded us to do, even when it's not easy. And then immediately he goes into a parable of service. And as he transitions and he begins then to teach this parable of service, he, uh, he ends up talking about uh, a man that's out, uh, that's out taking care of things. His servant is out plowing the field. And when he comes in, uh, he, he's saying, you're not going to go to the servant that you've hired and say, let me serve you. You're paying them to serve. And so you expect them to come in and to serve and to take care of you and the guests and then turn around and take care of their own needs. Uh, and it's, it's interesting that he states in verse 10, So likewise, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded, you say, We are unprofitable servants, for we have done that which is our duty to do. There are a lot of, uh, uh, more than one message worth of truths in that point, in that scripture, uh, and in that parable of service. But uh, just as we kind of look into where Jesus is leading and where we're going to pick up reading here in a moment, the realization that sometimes we get to feeling like, hey, you know, I made two extra services this week or I did this. It's above and beyond what I normally do this week. I'm really going forward and doing something uh, big for God. And so we, we kind of get that mindset where we kind of feel good about ourselves. And I don't want us to not feel the joy of the Lord. I'm not, you know, trying to quash that in our spirit. But I want us to be mindful of the fact that I really don't become profitable until I do what God has expected me and then exceed it. And so in a Christian life, in my Christian life, in my own personal walk, if I just do the basics of the Christian life, I'm not even at that point a profitable servant to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have to get to that point and sustain it and then really just grow to love and enjoy what I do on his behalf. So that, and I'm not talking about we have to go out and, you know, and, and kill ourselves working hundreds, a hundred plus hours a week. And the, the answer to this is not always doing more. It's the, it's the relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that's the point going into verse 11 here when he says, and it came to pass as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go, show yourselves unto the priest. And it came to pass as they went that they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God. And fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? They're not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto them, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. Now I want to ask the question by way of the title of the message this morning, Where are the nine? Let's pray. Father, as we begin, we thank you for your word, for its power in our lives. If we'll open our hearts to you, Lord, you can speak to us. You can change us. You can transform us. And Lord, I pray that you would do that work in our lives today, that you would convict us of our sin, 
that you would give us a desire to draw close to you, to increase our faith, to walk with you and to understand and to, uh, to, to know what it is, Lord, to have your presence and your power and your joy in our hearts and lives this morning. Lord Jesus, make it so we pray in your name. Amen. So we look here, you know, I don't think, for me at least, there's not a disease that is more descriptive of the effects of sin on an individual than leprosy. When you, when you look at the, the picture of sin in Egypt, you're talking about, in that context, the entirety of humanity. And so where God brings his people out of sin and, and then ultimately to a promised land, and, uh, and that parallels there are abundant. But when you get to the specifics of, of individual uh, impact of sin in the life, I don't know that there's a greater picture in the scripture than leprosy. Leprosy is not something that we think a lot about in our time in, in the Western world. It is still, it's not an eradicated disease. There, there are countries in the East that still deal that still deal with leprosy on a regular basis. I met several years ago a missionary to Thailand that, uh, that actually had founded about three or four different leper colonies in the nation of Thailand. And they, uh, and they, they, the way that he began and the way that he reached them is that he would see a man that had leprosy out on the street begging and he tried to approach him and uh, the man had a bowl of food there and, uh, and uh, the, you know, he approached the man and tried to give him the gospel and the man just kind of scoffed at him and he said, oh, you're just like, all the other so-called Christians, they said, you, you're going to keep your distance. And, you're, uh, and he sat down with them and he began to talk. And then after a while, he, the man shared his heart, his hurt, and the rejection and the isolation. And, uh, and uh, th this missionary uh, then reached into the bowl with his own hand that that man was eating out of with his leprous hand and ate the food with him. And at that point, he trusted Christ as a Savior. That expression of love, that, that you know, I'm, that, that going the extra mile. Uh, and at one point, uh, you know, there, there's, I, I don't know that this brother is even still living. He was an elderly man when I met him, but he's got uh, a strong ministry in, in these colonies that he founded in Thailand and also some, uh, some ministries and hospitals that he has founded in the Gobi Desert of Mongolia. Uh, and it literally has an encampment uh, and a hospital in the city dump outside of Ulaanbaatar, the capital city, because that's where all of the abandoned children and people are that are so needy and, and longing for help. And, uh, and the point is this, is that, that with sin, like leprosy, there is no natural cure. There, there's not a cure. They can't go to a doctor and take an antibiotic or get a vaccine or have some other thing. It is a disease that is incurable naturally. If it's going to be cured, it has to be cured supernaturally. That's what sin does to us. We, there is no natural cure for sin. There is no way to work myself to righteousness. There's no way for me to become good enough to satisfy uh, the justice and the, the wrath and, and the holiness of God. Uh, it has to be the supernatural act of God in our lives where he expresses his love, became our sin, paid the penalty that we might find forgiveness, that God's holiness and justice and righteousness were not compromised, but yet his love made a way for us to be redeemed. And so sin, uh, like leprosy, has no natural cure. It also disfigures its victim. I saw a lot of pictures with uh, this missionary brother and, uh, and many of the people that he had had no nose or they had no fingers or they had, uh, and some of them were pastoring small churches. They didn't look like a church, what we would call a church in our country and in this area, but within their colonies, they would have a group of people that would come together that all had leprosy that would, <coughs> that would gather up and they would have church and worship and uh, one of these men with leprosy would try to pastor these people until they went home to be with the Lord. And you could see them degrading over time physically, but growing spiritually because of what God had done in their heart. But that's what sin does. Sin disfigures us. Sin is not something that we can wear uh, and it not show an effect. I uh, look at pictures of 
past from time to time, as I'm sure that you do as well. And, you know, I looked and not that long ago was looking at some pictures from uh, people in our family from maybe a, that were our age now from uh, two or three generations ago and how much older they look than we, at least than we think that we look. And so you know how that goes. And so, but just hardened, uh, life was hard. They didn't have a lot of the things. Plus, they had all of the sin that they had not been redeemed from. They had uh, the alcohol and the uh, and the tobacco and all of the uh, of the immorality and all the different things that kind of filtered in at different generational times and different elements and wings of the family. And it, it takes a toll. You don't see it so much in your 20s and 30s, uh, but you see it uh, whenever people get much older. I remember looking at some of my grandmother's sisters that that smoked all of their lives and uh, and by the time they got to be into their 60s uh, you know there was no question or whether they were a smoker the effect on their voice uh, the the way that their lips and their faces were wrinkled up and leathered from uh, from the abusing their body uh, in that fashion and I, I'm just saying this morning sin takes a toll sin takes a physical toll Sin takes an emotional toll. Sin is destructive. And it's not isolated to, uh, to just the really, uh, what we would deem the really bad elements of society. It's a, it takes a toll on every person. Because that's what sin does. It is the essence of, uh, of, of disfigurement. It disfigures, so say, Pastor, well, I know people that are deeply sinful and man, they're, you know, they're, they're 10 years older than you and look fit as a fiddle and like they're going to go on for the next 50 years and not miss a beat. But you can't see the emotional toll and you can't see the inner turmoil and the inner scarring that's taking place and the heartache uh, within them. And so we look and we consider that sin is disfiguring. Like leprosy was disfiguring. Not only that, it segregated them from society and from family. When a person had leprosy in the Bible and in other cultures here that still have it, they're, they're withdrawn and isolated from society. Listen, sin isolates us from the family of God. By its own nature, someone that is, is letting sin come back into their life or that's deeply affected by sin, they'll turn around and they'll say, well, so-and-so at church treated me differently or so-and-so turned on me or so-and-so this. Nine times out of ten, there's no change except in their perception in their heart because of the guilt of their sin. They're bearing the weight and the guilt of sin, so they need a way to feel better about themselves so it becomes everyone else's fault and it's the impact of everyone else and not them taking responsibility for their sin. Why? Because when we come around holy people, when we come around godly people, righteous people, where God is working and God is blessing and God is moving and we are not engaged in that relationship with God, we automatically become keenly aware of the sin that's in our life. Whenever people came into the presence of Jesus, they were keenly aware of their sin. When Isaiah came into the presence of God, he was keenly aware of his sin. Uh, it, it wasn't a matter of someone having to point it out. It was a matter of, I know what's right. I know what's pleasing to the Lord. I know how my life should be. And as long as I'm isolated and out here and I don't have to confront it, I can, I can engage in it and I can, uh, I can you know, do all the things that I want to do guilt-free. But if I come to a place where the word of God is proclaimed and where Jesus is uplifted in song and where there's the joy of the Lord and where there's the freedom of that burden, automatically it brings the weight of that sin down upon us. By the way, that's not a bad thing. That's, a con that's what the Holy Spirit will deem and turn and use as conviction to draw us back. Because until we are convicted of our sin and repent of our sin, we'll never experience that freedom and that joy in Christ. And so, leprosy segregates. 
they would have colonies and they would have to remove themselves. And when they would come into the town, they would have to, uh, they would have to uh, scrape and wipe their sores to try to minimize the exposure to others. And they would have to shout as they ran through the town that they were unclean so that people had an opportunity to distance themselves. And, uh, and it was a very uh, demeaning and, and lonely life that they lived in their only joy or their only fellowship, their only interaction really with other people on a real basis was either with their loved ones from a distance outside of the colony or with those that also were in the same condition that they were in. Sin isolates us. Sin draws us away from God and from godliness. And it left one with no hope. A person who received a sentence of leprosy or the, the a diagnosis of leprosy essentially was given a death sentence. It wasn't a question of would they die prematurely, it was how quickly would death come upon them. How fast would the disease advance? How, uh, how uh, much pain would it inflict? How much heartache would it bring? How much loneliness and despair would settle upon them? And I just, it's hard for me to imagine that there's a clearer picture in all of the scripture. And if you've got something that's more clear than that to you, that's fine. That's okay. I'm not here to argue that. I'm just saying for me, it's a crystal clear picture of the effect of sin on the heart and the life of an individual that, that we can do nothing about of our own accord but God. God can cleanse. God can heal. God can restore. And so we see them here. This is the physical condition of these ten men. They're here. They're physically and emotionally rejected by everyone and everything that they desire. And as they approach and they see Jesus coming with his disciples and they, uh, they look at him and they, they come up to him and they stand afar off. Now, I'll, that's an important element of the passage because what they're doing is Jesus is here with his disciples and they're standing far off. They're not drawing nigh to Christ. They're keeping a distance. Sin causes us to want to keep a distance from the Lord. They desire his help. They desire his touch, but they don't want to get close. They know that there's the possibility that something could happen, but they're just keeping their distance. And so as they stand far off, and in keeping with the custom, which by the way, people who are in sin, Keeping a distance from God and godliness is our custom. They stand off and they cry out to him and said, if you would, you can heal us. Would you, would you touch us? And so they stand far off. They lift up their voice and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, what are they really asking? Well, for all intents and purposes, which is borne out by what they do after, all they're really concerned about is the physical, emotional turmoil and hurt that's in their life because of their disease. They're not really conscious or not really longing for a full inner cleansing and relationship with him. In other words, they come, they have a need, they want him to meet their need, but they don't really want a relationship with him. You see that a lot of times people will come uh, to church and they're in dire straits and they'll come in and they'll say, Pastor, can I meet with you? Uh, and they'll say, can you help me with my this? Or can you help me pay this? Or do you have this available? Or uh, we get phone calls almost on a weekly basis and uh, it's just a regular thing where people are, they don't, they're not really interested in God. They're just interested in, can I get something from you? And so these 10 are here and they're, Jesus, we're in bad shape. Can we get something from you? Will you have mercy on us? Jesus does. Now I want you to remember that leprosy is not something that gets healed. There's only been a few instances in the scripture where there was healing of leprosy. And always it was miraculous. Never was it natural. Never was it a fluke. Never was it an exception. 
Naaman had to dip in the Jordan. Miriam had to be rebuked and uh, demonstrate before God. There, there are instances, but it was always miraculous. And so they're here, they're lepers. There's no hope, but yet they plead for mercy. They want their symptoms alleviated. They want their cleansing. It's an interesting fact that in the law, there are specific sacrifices that were to be made if one was cleansed of leprosy. So God put in the law a ritual sacrifice, if you will, for someone to go through and to demonstrate his power and his cleansing if there was healing. But there was no natural healing. But Jesus says to them, go show yourself to the priest. Why? Because when they go and show themselves to the priest, and everyone knew them, everyone knew who they were, Every, this is a group of 10 men, everyone would recognize, hey, you men are from the leper colony, what are you doing here in the tabernacle or the temple? And when they come into the temple and the priest kind of shudder, he says, show yourself. They'll know what to do. But they're going to stand there and they're going to go through the process of it in disbelief because this is not going to be something that they've ever seen before. I'm just saying this morning that what Jesus Christ wants to do in your life is something that few people have ever seen before. That his forgiveness is not something that is just a cleansing of the outer man, but it is a transformation of the inner man, the whole man. If the Christianity that we have is only a Christianity of outward conformity, then we've not got Christianity at all. What Jesus wants to do is the inward transformation. It is to mold us and to shape us and to make us in to become him that the outward manifestation of our lives is simply the overflow of what God has done. Uh, I read uh, a quote just a day or two ago uh, that talked about you know, that, that talked about someone's zeal for God. And it's like, yeah, uh, but a pot that boils over is better than a pot that's never boiled at all. God help us to be a people that have a desire uh, to walk with him and to know him. So here they are. They're standing far off. They cry out to him. Will you have mercy on us? And then he does. Go show yourself to the priest. So all 10 of them then turn and began to go to show themselves to the priest. And as they go, one of them suddenly realizes, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't happen. Wait a minute, this is supernatural. Wait a minute, no one's gonna believe this. One of them says, I don't know for sure who Jesus is, but I wanna find out. And he comes back. And he comes back to him and he fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. He was not only loathed as an outcast of society because of his leprosy. He was loathed the outcast of their society and culture because he was a Samaritan. He was someone that they would go to great lengths to avoid. But yet here he is coming to Jesus and Jesus responds to the disciples here and to this one is, but were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? I'm glad that you, the light came on for you. But where are the nine? I, I'm glad that you, you, you've gotten this. And by the way, your faith to come back has now made you whole. So no, Pastor, weren't they cleansed of their leprosy? Yes, they were cleansed of their leprosy, but their soul and their spirit was still broken. What Jesus is saying to this man now is, now you're in Christ. Now you're saved. Now your sin is forgiven. Now your broken spirit and soul is made whole. But where are the nine? Nine had enough faith to be healed, but they didn't have enough faith to be saved. They didn't have enough faith to have their life changed. One believed and desired and was made whole. Sometimes today in our time, it's a little bit backwards in a manner of speaking in that there are a lot of people that will have the faith to, put their, to, to, to call on Christ and ask for forgiveness, but don't have the faith to be healed. We come to Christ and we recognize our sin and we even realize that there's nothing that we can do about it. Lord, forgive my sin. I want to be your child. Come into my heart and be my savior and thank God he does. 
But that's not supposed to be the end of the relationship. It's supposed to be the beginning of the relationship. It's supposed to be the beginning of transformation. It's supposed to be the, the beginning of God doing a greater work in our heart. One comes back. Jesus asked the obvious question, what about the other nine? So where did they go? Now, we don't really know. We, we presumably, they went to the priest and showed themselves like Jesus said. And where did they go after that? We, we don't really know. But I do think that there are some obvious things that we can deduce from the possibilities of where they went that I just want to call out this morning to kind of get us thinking along the lines of where am I? Where am I in my walk with God? Where am I in my Christian life? So the obvious place that they could have gone is just back to where they came from. So if we consider that this morning, I have to ask the question, are they in the pit? I don't mean the pit as in the lake of fire. I mean they, the leper colony tended to be a place of shelter, a place of caves, a place of, uh, uh, that, that was uh, removed in a way uh, where <coughs> there was some natural shelter from the element and they could recede into a, a, a place and, and have a place to go. And uh, when I talk about the pit, just consider the leper colony uh, just kind of, uh, in a manner of speaking, a pit outside of the city. It was close enough that they could see the people coming and going freely. It was close enough that they could come into the city gate and they could go in and buy food and transact business and come out uh, if they were strong enough to do it. Uh, but essentially, there's two things that I want to draw out of this thought. It's this, number one, that they were did they just return to the leper colony? Did they just go back to where they came from? Now, I find that highly unlikely, that if I have leprosy, and the Lord Jesus heals me of that leprosy, even if I'm not interested in a relationship with him, I'm probably not going to go back for fear of being recontaminated. But yet, there are a lot of people that return to their sin without any fear of being contaminated. Did they return to their leper colony? Did they return to the vice and the corruption that brought them into their state of illness? Did they go back to what had ruined them? And I think this practically is more along the lines of where people today would fall in. Does someone that comes to a friend day service or a revival service or regular service and hears the gospel and falls into the convicting power of the Holy Spirit and gives their heart to Christ and seeks his forgiveness but really doesn't have any real interest in the relationship, uh, it fades quickly. They, they, it's like the parable of the sower where the seed falls on, uh, on, on that, the, the briary ground, the thorny ground, where it just kind of comes up quickly in the things of this world and choke it off. Did it take root? Yes. Did it sprout? Yes. Did it begin to grow? Yes. But it could not be sustained because it was choked off. And too often we allow what God's doing in our heart and lives to be choked off because we go back to our sinful ways. It's not that we didn't start out with some desire, but it just didn't flourish like it could have. They returned to the vice that corrupted them or to return to this world's vices. Years ago, about 30 years ago, or 25 years ago, this past April, I'm working in a factory job, we're involved in our church, we're uh, in, involved with working with children's church and the bus ministry and, uh, and the boys' home. And so all of a sudden, one of the guys is working at the boys' home uh, decides that he's going to pastor and takes a church. And so I got recruited to come fill a space. So I left my job at the, at the factory and I came and I worked there in ministry. And, uh, and the very first boy that ever contacted me, his name was Steve. And the family called and it, it was an uncle that called me. His parents were not part of the picture he bounced around from place to place. Life had been very difficult and really sad. And he's 14 or 15 years old and he's already practically an alcoholic and he's involved in drugs and, uh, and he's got all kinds of problems. And, and really he's just one step from, from the juvenile detention and the life of imprisonment. And so his uncle calls and his aunt calls and, and their brother and sister, so they, they bring him and and he comes in and, and we love Steve. 
And so Steve was a great personality. He was hilarious. He was just, he could have you uh, laughing, uh, you know, just at the drop of a hat. He just, in spite of all of those things, there was just an enthusiasm and a joy about his personality. And, uh, and you know, he settled in and he felt loved. And so he, he really didn't cause a lot of problems. He liked to wrestle. He liked to, be, him and another kid would try to tackle me literally whenever I would walk into the dorm sometimes and, uh, and see if they could get me to the ground. And, and just, we had a, a, a great relationship. And Steve, uh, we were going to, we went to a, a meeting, I think it was a camp meeting up in uh, Pigeon Forge. It was about three hours from where we were and uh, we drove home at the end of it and we get home at about 12.30 or 1 o'clock in the morning and, uh, and the last day of this meeting there had been a lot of preaching about the, the second coming of the Lord and the rapture and, uh, and the church being taken out and, uh, and so when we got back Steve was asleep in the back of the van. We're in a 15 passenger van and, uh, and so I'm, we, get, we pull in, most of the guys are sleeping and I'm just trying to wake them up and so I just, I just said wake up, you know we're home and, and I, after about the second or third time I'm just like, you know, you guys are all 15 plus. If you want to spend a cold December night in the van, that's on you. I'm going home, going to bed. Uh, and so Steve just stayed in the van. Well, then about four o'clock in the morning, he wakes up and he's freezing. It's probably about 35 degrees outside. Uh, and so he's cold. He's just in there with his little jacket and, uh, and he wakes up and he can't find anybody. And the first thought that comes to his mind is they're gone. The Lord returned. And so now it's like 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, and there's a kid banging on my front door. And I go out, and it's Steve. And Steve, I come out, talk to him, and he gets saved that day. Tremendous change in his life. Great growth in his life. But yet, when it was all said and done, without getting into his entire story, when it was all said and done, he went back. He struggled back and forth. I remember in one service, we were sitting in a, in a service and he went to the altar and one of the missionaries that was there in the service uh, that, that he knew well, that was, that was involved with us a lot, went and prayed with him. And we had been talking before the service and Steve had gotten a call. He, he was thinking about going home and he was, he was really just thinking about quitting, going home, giving up. And so he went to the altar and then Brother Long saw him and he goes down and he prays with him and he just tells him, he said, he had no idea what he was praying about, what he's going through. He just said, don't go. So he doesn't go, he stays. So the next week, I think, we, we come in and he gets a phone call. I get a phone call right before the service and Steve's best friend back in North Carolina had been out with a friend they went to the friend's house. The, the friend uh, walks up with his, his friend's mom and stepfather and fighting. And then they come up and confront him and the guy pulls the gun and they turn around and they begin to run. And I got the call that night <clears throat> right before the service started. And Steve's best friend was struck in the back of the head by the gunfire. His friend that was running beside him just heard a thump, a thud and a thump of his friend catching the round and then falling to the ground. And they, there's no doubt in my mind that that wasn't in Steve's nature to run. Like if that would have happened, he would have been like trying to rush that guy and get it. That, that was just the way that he was wired. Because he was still sensitive to the Lord, God preserved him and gave him greater opportunity. He uh, ended up marrying our niece and, uh, and they weren't married too long and then he joined the military, went to Iraq, or, yeah, to Iraq and drove a truck for, for a couple of tours uh, and he came back and he was just, he, he already honestly had all of the PTSD symptoms before he ever enlisted. They never should have taken him. So he comes back and they get him so hopped up on medicine from the VA that he just develops diabetes, gains a lot of weight. And by the time he's, I don't know how old he was when he died, maybe 30, 32. He was 32. A life cut short because he went back. He didn't stay true to what God called him to, what God wanted to do and what God was doing in his life. 
he made some bad decisions and he reinstituted some bad relationships and it ended up costing him. Why? Because he went back to the pit. What I mean is he just went back to where he came from. And far too often, and Jesus is here looking at these 10 men that he's done this great miracle in, uh, in their life and, and, and one of them gets it. And he says, where are the nine? Well, where did they go? Well, I think it's likely that they went back to where they came from. I don't mean that they went back to the leper colony, but they went back to their normal way of life, the, the, the values that they grew up with, the values that they, uh, that they, that they had in their, in their lives before. Second place that I would consider that they may have gone is this, or I would ask this question, are they in the pasture? What I mean by that is <clears throat> they're avoiding the pit. They don't want to go back to what they were. They, they don't want to be what they were again. They want to be different. So they're avoiding the worst elements of society. You know, they're, they're the drug addict that's trying to stay away from the dealer. They're the alcoholic that's not, uh, that's not going to places where, the, you know, there's a, a lot of partying going on. They're, they're trying to stay clear because they don't want to be reinfected or encumbered with those things. But they're doing it in their own strength and their own power, they don't really want to give themselves over to the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're avoiding the pit. Problem is, they're also avoiding the pew. I, I, I don't want to be what I was, but he's looking at the disciples over here that are standing with Jesus, and they're saying, but I don't want to be what they are either. And from my vantage point as a pastor for the last 20 years, I can tell you that this comes and goes from our church on a very regular basis. There are those that come and that God speaks to their heart and they're just gone. As fast as they came in, they're gone. There are others that God does a transformative work in their heart and, and they're, 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 they're interested, but they're not committed. That they want to get in. And you really see it sometimes in marriages because, and typically it'll look something like this. There's a wife who has a husband that's just a wreck. He's abusive. He's, he's hurtful. Uh, he's got all of these other things and she's saved and she's trying to live for the Lord and she's got a great burden and she's praying for him to get saved and then uh, and then she finally gets him to come and we pray and we work and we try to uh, different people in the church will reach out to him and they'll come and they'll they'll make a decision to get saved and they really get saved I mean they get full salvation they don't just get their sins forgiven uh, and come here and there they they're all in walking with the Lord filled with the spirit empowered involved reaching to others and then the wife withdraws and you don't see her. She's the one that kind of falls off the scene because she wanted them to get saved, but she didn't want them to get that saved. She, didn't, she, she wanted him to change so that she didn't live in misery, but she didn't really want to get close to Jesus herself any more than she was. What am I saying? I'm saying this person, perhaps they went back to the pasture. They went back to where they were. I'm avoiding the, I'm avoiding the pit, but I'm also avoiding the pew. And I'm avoiding the palace. I'm avoiding the place where Jesus is. And I'm not this morning saying, I think that it's a shame if we come together and we don't meet with him. But I'm not trying to equate the palace to the church. I'm trying to equate the palace in this message to the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's on his throne. And what we should desire is a relationship with him that lets us draw close to him. You know, we don't want to just be that person. I don't want to just be that person that coming out of a revival week like we are, uh, where I would look out and say, you know, I, I don't want to go back to the way that I was doing maybe a week or two before the revival, whatever that means for you. But I also don't want to get all into everything that's going on. I just want to kind of stay out here in no man's land, in the pasture, just grazing, where I can get the benefits of Jesus when he passes by, but I don't have to be fully involved and committed. Are they in the pasture? The next place that I would consider that they could be is, are they in the pew? Are we here? 
Hey, Jesus, you, you, you forgave my sin. You healed my leprosy. I'm, I'm interested enough and I'm committed enough and I'm longing enough to know you that I'm, that I'm here, at least on Sunday morning. But that's all you get. You can't have any more of me. Are, are they in the pew? Have they, first of all, found a form of godliness? I wonder this morning how many of us are here that have a form of godliness, but not genuine godliness. We have a form of Christianity. We have a form of a cleaned up life. We have a form of a, a transforming heart, but not a real, authentic, genuine transformation taking place in our life. I don't want to be the kind of Christian that has a form of godliness, but denies the power of God. I don't want to be the kind of Christian that simply goes through the motions to appease conscience and to please the people around me. I want a real, genuine, authentic, and if that means everyone looks at me and says, you're a Samaritan, so be it. I want to find myself at the feet of Christ, Amen. not standing out in the pasture, not hanging out around the pit, or just simply sitting in a pew. We have far too many people across the world in churches that do nothing but sit in the pew. Are we just in the pew this morning? Do we have a form of godliness? The second thought about sitting in the pew that I would bring out is this, that they were living a reformed but not a restored life. There was reformation in their life. There were things that changed by virtue of the fact that they were healed. They no longer had to cry unclean. They no longer had to identify uh, as, as contaminated they, uh, and dangerous to society. They, they could go about their normal business and life. They were reformed, but they weren't restored. My friends, this morning when Jesus Christ gives us salvation and the power to walk with him, what he offers us is not simply the forgiveness of sin, but full restoration. In other words, whatever's broken in your life, if, you're, if your childhood was broken, if your marriage has been broken, if you have suffered abuse and, uh, and molestation and all kinds of wicked sin in the background of your life, uh, and you carry that with you through life today, may I say to you that what Jesus Christ wants to do for you is give you full restoration from the baggage of all of that. Yeah. To walk free of it. I'm talking about the things that were deeply imprinted on your soul as a child that you may not even remember, but they affect you daily. Jesus can set you free from. Amen. Amen. Are we just simply in the pew, reformed but not restored? I want to seek his face until I find restoration. I want to know him and I want to seek him and I want to grow in him to, to gain a, a relationship with him that restores the fullness of my life. The life that he gave, the life that he designed for you, for me, the life that he makes possible. So often we stop short of ever knowing him on such a level because it takes a lot of work and waiting and faith and growth. Are we just in the pew? Are we feeling good about ourselves but doing nothing? You know, a lot of us, that, uh, the change that God has worked in your life is amazing. The, the change from what we once were to what we are now is incredible. I mean, honestly, there are a multitude of people in the room that if I were to bring them up and have them start at the day that they were saved and to share their testimony of salvation and what God's done in their life, many of us would look at them and say, I can't even see that in you anymore. Because what God has done is so tremendous. The problem is, is that sometimes we just start to feeling good about ourselves. Because we look at ourselves and we say, you know what, I may not be what I should be, but I sure am not what I was. And that's a wonderful testimony. But that shouldn't be the end of our story. That shouldn't be the end of our growth in grace. That shouldn't be the end of our experience with Christ. That shouldn't be what fills us up so that we don't want to partake any more of what he has. Don't let yourself get to the place where you feel so good about what you're not anymore that we're no longer doing anything productive for God and growing in his grace because we would never say it this way, but we've arrived. We've come far enough.
we're satisfied with where we've gotten to. And it's a wonderful miracle that we're no longer where we were, but we're missing the miracle that could be because we're not willing to walk a little further down the road with the Lord Jesus Christ. The last place that I would consider this morning is this, is that one of them, one and only one, came to the palace, came to the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. What did he do? Well, there are three primary things that he did here. And it says, the Samaritan, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God. He didn't hide it back. I mean, for all these years, he's, however long he was sick, he had to cry out with a loud voice, unclean. So what does he do in response? Now he turns back with a loud voice and he glorifies God. If I can yell, hey, I'm unclean, get out of the way, I'm, I'm coming, I might contaminate you with this disease, save yourself, spare yourself, but I've got to come in. Then he's not going to sit back with a quiet voice and say, well, you should see what Jesus did for me. No, he's going to come in and say, hey, everybody stop. I used to have to cry out that I was unclean so that you could separate. Now I'm crying out, praise be to God, I'm healed. Come and see what God's done in my life. He cries out with a loud voice. What did he do? He came to the king. He cried out and then he humbled himself. Jesus says, were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? They said, there's only this stranger here. And the stranger turned back, fell on his face at the feet of Christ and gave him thanks. And three thoughts here. First, he came to the king. If I want to have a transformed life, if I want to have a full relationship, a full experience with Christ, it starts with me coming to the king. Now listen, I'm glad that Jesus comes to us. I'm glad that he came to me where I was and found me. I'm glad that he searched me out and, and, and put people in my life that directed me to the saving knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm glad that when I was away from the Lord and backslidden, that he didn't just leave me floundering out there as he would have been well justified to do. He still put people in my life and worked events in my life and drew me back to him so that I had an opportunity to repent of my sin and to find help and restoration and power in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm going to tell you something, the Christian life in this way, the Christian life that has joy, the Christian life that has power, the Christian life that's transformed does not require him to come to us, it requires us to come to him. So what do you mean, pastor? Well, when I was lost, Jesus came and found me and he convicted me and he drew me to himself and he even gave me the faith that was necessary for me to put my, my faith and trust in him. He does it all for us. He's a wonderful, loving, forgiving, long-suffering God. But if I want a real relationship, I've got to come to him. He doesn't force himself on us. And when I come to him, I come to him on his terms. I'm not coming negotiating I'm coming on his terms. I come to him and he's sitting on his throne. I come to him and he's a, a, a adorned in holiness and righteousness. I, I come to him in my imperfection, longing to know him and coming and saying, Lord, <coughs> I'm glad that you let me come into your presence. I'm coming and I'm humbling myself at your feet. And this morning, what we need to be is a people that come to the Lord Jesus Christ, longing for more of him, humbling ourselves in our sin at his feet. He humbled himself. I wonder, will we humble ourselves before the Lord? While I acknowledge my sin, while I acknowledge my frailty, while I acknowledge my weakness, and yes, thank God for the strength that he gives and thank God for where he's brought us from and thank God for the things that he's done in, his li in our lives. But don't let that be the end of the story. Keep growing. He humbled himself. And what was the result? The result was arise. And go thy way. Thy faith hath made thee whole. 
Thy faith hath made thee whole. Listen, this is not simply salvation. This is a life full and free in Christ. This is a life with his empowerment, a life with his guidance, a life with his leading. You understand that when he said to this Samaritan leper, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. He says, you're clean. By the way, you're not a Samaritan anymore. You're one of my people. You're an heir. A joint heir with Christ. Everything that's mine is yours. You have access to all of the power of heaven. If you'll just humble yourself at my feet. So my questions as we close this morning are simply this. Where are you? Where are you? Are you still leprous this morning? The fact of the matter is, is that in all likelihood, there's someone here that's never put their faith and trust in Christ. It's never been convicted or felt conviction, repentant of their sin. They've never received Jesus Christ as their Savior. And if that's your case this morning, my friend, then what we see in this text is that you're standing in a state of leprosy. With the full weight, the full impact, the full uh, destruction of its power on your life and on your body. On your soul, on your spirit. If you'll cry out to him as he draws nigh to you. Convicting of your sin, if you'll repent and place your faith in him. He says, you're cleansed. But I'm just going to tell you this morning, if all you ever experience in the Christian life is cleansing... You've missed so much. I'm glad I'm cleansed. But I want to be whole. I'm glad that I'm saved. But I want what's broken in my life to be fixed. I come to realize more and more as I get older. That there are things deeply imprinted on my soul. That I don't even have lost awareness of that only God can fix and give restoration to. Will we come to, where are we this morning? Will we be honest with ourselves and with God and answer the question in our own heart? Where, Lord, this morning am I? Am I leprous? Am I hanging around the pit? I don't want to get in. I don't want to go back. Am I in the pasture just kind of grazing and just kind of standing around, going with the flow, trying not to get... In the bad crowd, but try not to get in the zealous crowd. Am I in the pew? I've got a form of godliness. My life looks good to everybody around me. Everybody that looks at me that knew me before says, man, God's really done something great in your life. And I feel good about that. And it's an amazing thing. And, you know, praise God for what he's done. But do we have a form of godliness that denies his power? Do we have lives that are reformed but not restored? Have we missed out on all that? The deep things that God has for us? Or will we come to the palace? Will we come to where Jesus is? Will we come to him and humble ourselves at his feet? And receive wholeness. Be whole in Christ. Come. It's good to be cleansed. It's amazing to be whole. At least I think it will be if I ever get there.